This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today's episode is about writer, musician, and political activist Zikala Shah. Zikala Shah was born Gertie Aveline Felker on February 22, 1876, on the Yankton Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Where she lived until she was eight. Zitkala Shah's father abandoned the family when she was young. Her mother, Ellen Simmons, was a strong presence in her life, and Zitkala Shah took her mom's surname as a young woman, becoming Gertrude Simmons. Later, she took the Lakota name Zitkala Shah, meaning red bird. Of her mother, Zitkala Shah wrote, Often, she was sad and silent, at which times her full arched lips were compressed into hard and bitter lines, and shadows fell under her black eyes. When she asked her mother what made her sad, her mother replied, We were once very happy, but the pale face has stolen our lands and driven us hither. Having defrauded our land, the pale face forced us away. When Zikala Shah was seven, missionaries came to the reservation to recruit children to go to White's Indiana Manual Labor Institute. Despite her mother's pleading, Zikala Shah begged to go to the school with her older brother. She later wrote that she regretted the decision almost immediately. After three years in Indiana, Zikala Shah returned to the reservation in 1887 where she no longer felt at home. She wrote, During this time, I seemed to hang in the heart of chaos, beyond the touch or voice of human aid. Even nature seemed to have no place for me. I was neither a wee girl nor a tall one, neither a wild Indian nor a tame one. In 1891, Zitkala Shah returned to White's Indiana Manual Labor Institute where she studied piano and violin. When she graduated in 1895, she gave a speech on the inequality of women's rights. Instead of returning to her home and her mother, Zikala Shah attended Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana, where she had a scholarship. It was at Earlham that Zikala Shah started to gather traditional Native stories to translate into Latin and English. In 1899, Zitkala Shah started teaching at Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Pennsylvania, the most well-known of the off-reservation boarding schools. But she quickly came into conflict with the school's founder and headmaster, Colonel Richard Henry Pratt, whose motto was, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. Seeing the effect that this approach had on the children, Zikala Shah left her teaching job at Carlisle. 
and moved to Boston to study violin with a teacher associated with the New England Conservatory of Music. She also began to write articles in Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Monthly, critical of the boarding schools and the trauma the children experienced. Zekala Shah returned to the reservation in South Dakota to care for her mother. She was engaged to Chicago doctor Carlos Montezuma, who was Apache, and she encouraged Montezuma to join her in South Dakota. When he refused, she broke off the engagement. In 1901, she published Old Indian Legends, a book of short stories based on the Sioux oral tradition. In 1902, she married Captain Raymond Bonin, a member of her tribe who had also survived boarding school. The Bonins moved to the Uinta and Ure Reservation when Captain Bonin was assigned there. And for the next 14 years, they lived among the Ute people. Their son was born during that time. In 1913, after meeting Professor William F. Hansen at Brigham Young University, Zitkala Shah wrote the libretto and songs for their opera collaboration, The Sundance Opera, based on the sacred Sioux ritual that had been banned by the federal government. It was around that time that Zitkala Shah joined the Society of American Indians, where she would become secretary-treasurer. In her writing, she argued both for the preservation of Native ways of life and for the right of Native Americans to have full American citizenship. In 1916, the Bonins and their son moved to Washington, D.C., where Zitkala Shah became even more politically active. She lectured to promote the cultural identity of Native Americans, and she lobbied for the passage of the 1924 Indian Citizenship Act. Through her lecturing and writing, Zitkala Shah was successful in raising awareness about Native American issues and was able to impact government policy. In American Indian Stories in 1921, Zitkala Shah wrote, Now the time is at hand when the American Indian shall have his day in court through the help of the women of America. The stain upon America's fair name is to be removed, and the remnant of the Indian nation, suffering from malnutrition, is to number among the invited invisible guests at your dinner tables. In this undertaking, there must be cooperation of head, heart, and hand. We serve both our own government and a voiceless people within our midst we would open the door of American opportunity to the red man and encourage him to find his rightful place in our American life. We would remove the barriers that hinder his normal development. Wardship is no substitute for American citizenship. Therefore, we seek his enfranchisement. In 1926, the Bonins co-founded the National Council of American Indians, to help Indians help themselves in government relations. Many conflicts had to be resolved by Congress, and the Bonins were instrumental in representing tribal interests. 
Zikala Shah was the council's president, public speaker, and major fundraiser until her death. Zikala Shah died on January 26, 1938, in Washington, D.C., at the age of 61. She is buried in Arlington National Cemetery with her husband, Raymond. To help us understand more about Zikala Shah, I'm joined now by Dr. P. Jane Hafen, Taos Pueblo, Professor Emerita of English at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and the editor of two books of Zitkala Shah's writings. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited uh, to talk about Zitkala Shah. So welcome. Thank you. So I thought maybe we could start, if you could just tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in studying Zitkalisha and, you know, kind of how you got into to researching and writing about her. Sure. Shortly after I finished my PhD, I had the opportunity to be a Newberry Fellow at the Newberry Library in Chicago. But my dissertation was about contemporary American Indian literatures. And uh, I needed a historical project because, of course, they're a historical library. And I remembered from my younger days at BYU having seen uh, the Sundance Opera Mm. in the stacks. And I thought, well, this would be a good topic. And sure enough, I used my time at the Newberry to study the American Indian Society and a lot of other things, but it took me back to BYU where the Sundance Opera was archived and where at that time there were about 20 boxes that just had paper stuffed in them. They weren't sorted. They hadn't been uh, analyzed by an archive librarian. Uh, I think BYU kind of knew what they had, but didn't really. And uh, so I, uh, I went through those papers and I found a, a number of unpublished stories that she had written. And that was my first publication about her, Dreams and Thunder, Stories, Poems, and the Sundance Opera. And so it has the libretto to the opera, which is kind of an interesting beast in and of itself. And then I continued to work on it for a very long time. And then a couple of years ago, uh, had her later political writings, Help Indians Help Themselves. So I spent a large part of my career uh, reading and writing about her works. That's excellent. So it sounds like you sort of started to answer this, but as so many of the sort of figures and people that we maybe don't hear as much about, it's often because there isn't a a large archival record of their work. But she obviously wrote a ton. A lot of it was published at the time. There's, uh, you know, a lot to know about her. You know, why why do you think it is that that she isn't more well known? Well, I think and I kind of anticipate that question. In American Indian Studies, she's pretty well known. This is an older edition of American Indian Stories, Mm. which contains her boarding school narratives. And if she were to ever only be known for this, it would be an amazing achievement because she was one of the first uh, Native authors to write without an amanuensis, without somebody translating for her or heavily editing uh, what she wrote. 
And so she tells about uh, her boarding school experience. And there's a wonderful contrast with her innocence and her uh, tribal upbringing. And then what happens when she gets to boarding schools and then some more reflective things. And then a series of short stories that are part of those collections. And those were all published in Oh, the Atlantic Monthly and Harper's Bazaar around 1900-1901, and then she collected them into this little volume called American Indian Stories, which has pretty much been in print in various forms since, for well, for 100 years. Mm-hmm. And because they're not copyrighted, they're widely anthologized in American literature anthologies, in American Indian Studies anthologies, and so forth. So people who are kind of leaning that way probably would have heard of her, but it's always been my feeling that the boarding school stories are this much of a very long and productive literary life. Mm -hmm. And it becomes more literary political, of course, later in her life. She's not writing those kinds of narratives or short stories that she was when she was younger, but she's writing a lot of very interesting discourses. Uh, in, in the latest book, there are testimonies before Congress. That takes a large part of it. And there's correspondence uh, when she was president of the National Council of American Indians. And so I think her political influence has really not been served well. People are, are unaware of her her political involvement in the 1920s and the 1930s until her death. I want to get back to that in a minute. But first, I think people are maybe just in the past year or two uh, starting to to hear more and understand more about these boarding school stories and, and what happened. I think that had been so sort of suppressed from our, our history for so long. But could you talk a little bit about yes that and, and her experience with uh, going to boarding school and, and being sort of excited about it at the beginning. And then, of course, it was a sort of terrible, yeah. traumatic experience. Sure. There were several very famous boarding schools. Carlisle, probably the most famous one. A lot of children taken involuntarily. But as you note, she says in her own story, she begged her mother to go because her friends were going. And of course, she uses the wonderful metaphor of going to the land of red apples and uses all these fall from Eden imagery as she does that. But what can a seven-year-old know about wanting to go to boarding school? Yeah. So there are some people who criticize her agency. Well, my students used to criticize her agency, but she wanted to go. Well, what kind of agency does a seven-year-old have uh, to do that? But I think that there was a growing awareness that Uh, For some, it was their only means of survival. Uh, We know that her husband, Raymond, went to Haskell. He was also a boarding school survivor. My own father went to the Santa Fe boarding school. His parents allowed it because they faced the inevitable, but, uh, you know, it had uh, long-term consequences. I mean, what's so interesting, right, is that she has this traumatic experience, but then she goes and teaches at Carlisle. Yeah, so, you know what? Uh, I guess can you speculate, perhaps, on on her motivations then on on going and teaching there later? Well, one thing that I've tried to be careful in my work about her is to not guess at her motivations, because she pretty much puts it out there 
what she's thinking and what she's feeling. And then you see a lot of critics and a lot of scholars say, well, she did this for this reason. And she, I even read work who people who thought she was bipolar and, you know, different projecting their own imagery on her own actions. But you think about it here. She is a young woman. She's very uncomfortable when she goes back to the reservation. There's a transition on the Yankton Reservation where she was raised, the Yankton Sioux. There's a transition from a a survival economy to a mercantile economy. And she, for her time and for her age, is more educated than most people there. Where is she going to find employment? What is she going to do? The natural thing is to step into teaching because she has a certain number of skills and uh, she's familiar with the system. And of course that didn't work out well for her uh, as she butted heads with Richard Pratt, who was the director of the Carlisle training school. Yeah. So then let's talk some about this, uh, the, the political work that, uh, that she did. Uh, you know, and I, I was reading something that talked about uh I think it's the Indian Citizenship Act. I might have the name of it uh, not quite right, um, but that that was something that that she was advocating for. And I think you know maybe with the uh, sort of lens of of history, there are some people who say, oh, that wasn't necessarily the best thing. But you know, yeah. I think uh, part of it for me is I. I should have realized, but I, I didn't realize uh, until I was reading about her and about that act uh, that not all Native Americans were citizens as of 1924. Uh, so exactly. what, what, is, what is going on here? What uh, and, and how did that legislation sort of come to be? And, and what was her her role in sort of advocating for this? Well, it's it's pretty complicated. The Yanktons were unusual in that they became citizens and received the right to vote in 1895. So she was enfranchised then. And even when she lived in Utah and other places, she she and her husband were able to vote because they were both of the Yankton tribe. And that's certainly not true for many, many, many other tribes. Uh, But it became her political hobby horse during World War I when uh, soldiers about 12,000 American Indians served in World War I, and they did not have the rights of citizenship. And so it's been really interesting the last couple of years to be to see the way that she's been caught up in this centennial of suffrage mm-hmm. when she was advocating for citizenship, which is much more than suffrage, and not just the right of women to vote, but the right of all Indians to vote. Mm-hmm. And Utah has been really funny in particular because they gathered her up because she lived there for about 10 years and claimed her as part of the suffrage movement when a she could vote and b utah was the last state in the united states in 1957 to give american indians the right to vote who were so there's a lot of irony going on there yes the citizenship act enfranchised a lot of American Indians, but there were individual states for different reasons that withheld the vote from American Indians. What were the other... (laughs) You're shaking your head. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's also unbelievable. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not just unbelievable, but unbelievable that uh, 
I, I, this is sort of the whole theme of the podcast, right? It was like, why didn't I know these things? <laughs> and uh, and this, is, this is one of those, uh, for sure. So what were the other things that, that citizenship meant, you know, being granted citizenship? <laughs> granted does not seem like the right word there, but I, you know, being, uh, being allowed citizenship, you know, what, what else did that mean for them? Well, it could mean, and it has not historically done so, but it could mean the protection of one's civil rights. And that's huge. And as recently as the 1990s, there was a book written about how civil rights are abrogated on a, on Indian reservations. There's not a freedom of the press. There's not the Fifth Amendment in per- certain federal trials and, and particular things. And so uh, the legal history of civil rights is a really important aspect of that. But the initial initial idea of making American Indians American citizens in 1924 is is what compelled that legislation. And a lot of Native peoples consider themselves dual citizens, citizens of their sovereign nations and citizens of the United States. Is that still true? Yes. Yeah. Uh, There are some tribes that issue their own passports. Mm. So I want to talk to you about her music. Uh, so you mentioned yeah. that that's what brought you into studying her initially, this opera, the Sundance opera. So this is super unique. Can you talk about what, what this <laughs> opera was and you know what, what makes it uh, such an interesting story? Okay. Well, she was living out in northeastern Utah. And again, the economics of the situation, she needed employment. Her husband needed employment, so they worked at what was then called the Indian Bureau. It's the forerunner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And he was a clerk there in the office, which distributed treaty goods. And she was employed off and on as a teacher to help out with her physical things. And she writes about that in one of the early issues of American Indian Magazine, which was the publication of um, the American Indian Society about her experiences living among the Utes. And I think that's the the actual title of it. And it's in the newer book, her essay about that. But she's out there and she has these musical skills and she played the violin, she played the piano. And, you know, it's pre-TV, pre-internet, pre-radio. And there were these salon gatherings And most of the people that they associated with were not the Utes, but non-Indians. So there was a music teacher out there named William Hansen, and uh, they got this idea, let's write an opera. And I don't know if you want to include this in the podcast, but it reminds me of the Muppets go to Hollywood, you know? (laughs) It's, let's write an opera. So they talked about different uh, topics for the opera, and one of them was uh, Chapita who was the wife of uh, Chief Uray of the Northern Utes. And they decided against that, and they decided to use the Sundance as a framework for an opera. Mm-hmm. So it, it's structurally, it's really fascinating because it comes with a hero, it comes with his desired love. You have the evil uh, Shoshone singer because he's from a competing tribe and he wants to win the girl. and Uh, One of the most amazing pieces is a trio of gossips and 
You also have a character that's called a Haoki who does everything backwards. He's kind of a trickster character and he gets his own songs and things. And in the original productions, uh, which were done in Utah in 1912 to 1914, they would perform on stage, but they would have members of U tribe and they would have a, a big pause and the youths would perform some of their traditional dances. Now I've been told that the Yankton Sioux did not Sundance, mm. but the Utes did because they're a Northern Plains tribe. So they were uh, involved in that. And it, it fits pretty consistently with stage performances, traveling performances that would happen in the early 1910s and so forth. And one of the, the singers, um, York, he was an opera singer, and he stages it at the, uh, in New York about three months after Gertrude died. Mm. But it got panned by the critics. And musically, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to perform, very difficult to listen to. In 2014, there was a group of, you, you love this, the irony of this, there was a group of siblings who are Navajo and their last name is Singer. <laughs> and so Sarah Singer was a beautiful soprano and her brother James, a wonderful baritone. And they staged a performance of selections at Westminster College in Salt Lake City. And it was, it was pretty amazing. Their performances, I always say, made it better than it was. Mm. Yeah, it would be very difficult to, to restage the whole opera. I'm asked about that fairly frequently. It would, be, it would be difficult to do so. But they had this uh, selections that were pretty amazing. Are there any recordings of that? I think Westminster has a recording. Hmm. I know, I don't know if you've seen the Unladylike segment. Mm -hmm. The background are selections from the Westminster recording. Oh, great. Yeah. And, and Meg Singer talks about the opera yeah. in that selection. Okay, excellent. So I, I think one of the things uh, that was most interesting to me as I was reading some of Zikala Shah's writing is just how uh, modern it seems. Uh, and, you know, I don't know <laughs> if that's just because of the sort of clarity of her voice or if it's because, unfortunately, you know, the situations in some ways haven't changed that much. But, you know, you've you've obviously read a, a much more of her work than I have. Uh, and, you know, what... What do you think it is about, uh, I don't know, either the, the writing style or the subject matter or whatever, that, that still does seem so resonant today? Well, I like her description of clarity. Uh, I think she's very clear about what she does. I think she has a tremendous sense of injustice. And she recognizes that she has the platform and the voice to try to correct that injustice. And that really drives her. You see that with the Citizenship Act. I would strongly recommend that people read uh, Oklahoma's Poor Rich Indians. It was an investigative pamphlet that was sponsored by the American Indian Defense Association. And she went with some guys out to uh, Oklahoma and they talk about the graft and terrible things that were happening. And that shows up in a variety of venues. Um, there was the popular book, Killers of the Flower Moon, 
which is now being made into a movie by directed by Martin Scorsese uh, that investigates those murders among the Osage people. But if you want to read the original report, read what Gertrude wrote. And you get that sense of outrage and uh, we need to protect and to right those wrongs. And so that report, there were echoes, I think, of our political circumstances these days. When it was presented before Congress, congressmen said, oh, that can't be true. And they, they questioned her credibility. Uh, they attacked her personally, saying that, that what she had witnessed could not be the case. And it's, it's a fascinating document. It's, it's a little long, but you see the seeds of it still playing out in the political theater that we're experiencing today, but also in the creative theater as this film is being made about those circumstances with the Osage in the 1920s. Speaking of film, I think someone should make a film of her life. <laughs> Why isn't this out there yet? <laughs> yeah, one of the best uh, biographies is a young adult biography uh, mm. called The Flight of Redbird by Doreen Rappaport. And she, she did some amazing research on that original documents and photos and so forth. Yeah. So speaking of uh, writings and things, uh, how, how can people get your books uh, if they're interested? Dreams and Thunder is published by the University of Nebraska Press and Help Indians Help Themselves is uh, available from Texas Tech University Press, currently having a 50% off sale. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually available on Kindle for only $10. Excellent. So. And, and I don't see much of that. And what I do see of it, I don't keep because I think they're her words <laughs> and uh, try to find a cause that I think she would support. And if people would like to support causes that she would support, do you have a, a recommendation? Native American Rights Fund. Okay. They're involved in the legal protection of Native people's rights. Excellent. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we talk about? She had a very strong personality. And you see occasional conflicts uh, with, with people around her. But I do think that what really drove her and motivated her was the idea of justice. And so... What I would really like to see is some history student do a dissertation on her husband, because I think he uh, helped her with her writings a lot, especially uh, later when the National Council of American Indians, when they were presenting testimony before Congress, uh, they would often appear together. And because she was the president, she would sign the documents, but he had been to law school, even though he wasn't a lawyer. And he would help her prepare those documents. So there's a lot of work out, uh, out there to be done. And Brigham Young University is very generous in allowing people into their archives. So uh, I hope that people would continue looking at her work and looking at her husband's work. Excellent. I, I should recommend this as a place people should uh, tune into if they want dissertation ideas. <laughs> I love it. 
Yeah. Yeah. It would really be great to see somebody do that work. Yeah. And that's an odd twist so often uh, from this time period and earlier, you know, we see uh, men who are the ones whose name is out there and it was, you know, their wives who were helping them with a lot of the writings. That's a sort of a neat twist to think it's the reverse in this case. Well, yeah, it is. But she had the reputation and certainly she had the ability. Yeah. And there is a lot of good work about the performativity you know, when she was speaking before the Federated Women's Club, she would wear her traditional regalia, not costume, but regalia, traditional tribal wear. And, of course, people are interested in the exotic aspect of it, but she would use that as a tool to get her message across. Yeah. Well, this is just a fascinating story. I have loved learning about Sitkala Shah, and I'm so grateful that uh, that you were willing to, to share your, your time and your expertise with us. Well, I'm really happy to do it. Thank you for your interest. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends.